BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. MSW Media. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Friends, it's easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you. Never take a moment to think about what you need from yourself. Look, when we spend all of our time giving, it can leave us feeling stretched thin and burned out. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life, so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I suggest you give BetterHelp a try. I've been using it for the past year, and it's been tremendous. Lockdown did a number on me. I was feeling pretty low. Then I connected with a BetterHelp therapist, and well, I feel like me again. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WWD today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WWD. Hi, this is Annika Sorenstam, and we're listening to What Are We Drinking with Dan Dunn. That's almost it. Almost. Okay, which part? Which part? The contraction. You're 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 uncontracting the contraction. You're saying what are we drinking? <laughs> I'm, a sw- I'm a Swede. I'm a Swede. It's what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. What we what we're drinking. Yes. Hi, this is Annika, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Boom. Sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Welcome to the show. How are you? Coming up, I'm going to be chatting with golf legend Annika Sorenstam. That's right. As a aspiring golf legend myself, couldn't be more excited. But first, joining me now, one of the uh, truly great restaurateurs I know. He had uh, the iconic Jimmy's, an American 
bar, restaurant, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Jimmy's in Aspen. I just call it Jimmy's. And uh, my friend Jimmy Yeager. How are you, buddy? Good, good, Dan. Nice to see you. Appreciate you coming on here as a sort of a last minute thing. I, I, I wanted to get your perspective because I read an article today in the New York Times. Now, uh, the headline said the restaurant service charge isn't going anywhere. And the gist of the article was talking about added on fees that confuse diners and even employees, but how owners are relying on them to help make a tough business work. Now, you, you've gotten to read the article, right, Jim? I did read it, yes. Okay. First off, if you can give a synopsis of what it was about for the listeners. Sure. Uh, first of all, it was one of the few articles that I would actually say was very well written. Um, it was rather comprehensive, and it brought in a whole bunch of different perspectives, which I very much appreciated. Um, the article basically touches upon that uh, our history in America of hospitality has always been driven, um, and we can go back through the history of it, but I don't think that's relevant at the moment. Um, it's been driven by the customer basically paying the service staff through tips. And uh, it, it illuminates the fact that um, there's been a tremendous inequity in our business and hospitality between the front and the back of the house because the front of the house bartenders and servers and support staff are essentially treated as sales staff. And they get rewarded based on a percentage. Essentially, it's a percentage of their sales. So if an average tip is, say, 20% just for nice round numbers, and a waiter goes out there and produces $2,000 in sales, they're going to bring $400 in tips to the service pool. Um, generally, most establishments have a pool system on one way or another um, where the collective tips are pooled together and then distributed amongst uh, the service staff. And there's laws written around that those tips belong to the service pool. You cannot legally give them to the cooks or whatever to try to make that more equitable. Correct. There's there's laws that define what a tipped employee is. And so sometimes a host can be considered a tipped employee if X percentage of her income comes from tips or his tips, um, uh, their tips. <laughs> and um, But essentially, yes. So there's a fiduciary responsibility on the restaurant's part um, to distribute those tips only amongst tipped employees. And in most states, the wages, the minimum wages are constructed in uh, two different ways. One is for tipped employees and one is for non-tipped employees. So I believe the national average right now for, non uh, for tipped employees is still only a couple and a half bucks an hour. And so essentially what it's saying is, is that uh, tipped employees therefore earn their income through tips and not through wages because the wages are so So let, let me let me stop you there. So one of the issues is the sort of arbitrary nature of it. Some people might choose not to tip 20%. They might choose not to tip at all. That seems to be one of the issues that servers used to have when you're going back to their making two something an hour, two dollars and something an hour, is if they have a bad night because of things sure. that might be out of their control. They they ring a $300 check and they get left a $10 tip. Well, then they might not be able to pay the rent. That, that certainly is an issue in the system of, uh, of the tipping culture is that it is inconsistent. And the argument why people want to maintain the tipping culture is because the reward um, sometimes is greater than the penalty. 
So therefore, you know, what, what, one of the things that's missing in this argument is that not all hospitality establishments um, are cut the same way. So for instance, a diner um, has one set of customer base and people look at tipping in a diner differently than say a fine, uh, fine dining restaurant. And so we actually have these different types of businesses that produce very, very different results. So uh, a, a diner waiter or, uh, or bar, a, a dive bartender might work in a place where, you know, they may not be making after, after tips much more than $10, $15, $18 an hour. But in fine dining, um, you could have tipped employees making upwards of $45 to $60 an hour. So the first thing in legislation that, doesn't, that it, uh, legislation does not address is that there's different types of hospitality establishments. And therefore, the tipping model, um, as broken as it is, is even more broken for people on the short end of that stick. Okay. So now enter the service charge. And this is, I'm quoting from the New York Times article here. It says, one thing is clear. The charges are meant to help shore up a restaurant industry that has long run on slim profit margins and now faces a host of challenges, including inflation, labor shortages, and an expectation or mandate in rising minimum wages that workers get better wages and benefits. And so to deal with all of this, an increasing number of restaurants across the country, from fast food chains to fine dining destinations, have in recent years added a service charge, have added service charges of up to 22% and sometimes more. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that the article points out is tricky is, and I didn't know this either, and I'm in the business sort of, is... I when I see service charge, I automatically assume that that's going to the servers, the wait staff, the bartender. But it's different than an automatic gratuity. The service charge can be anything that the owners of the restaurant want it to be. It can go anywhere they want it to go. So, what are your feelings about that? Well, first of all, that is correct. A, a service charge is a taxable line item, and it is therefore considered revenue. So it does belong to the owner of the establishment, and there is no fiduciary responsibility on the owner to distribute those service charges only to tipped employees. The spirit of it is certainly to replace tipping um, or the majority of tipping, but there's no responsibility on the ownership. So you get some bad actors in there that hide, don't uh, communicate, don't delineate exactly where that money's going. That is a major, major problem. Okay, I'm just going to put it brass tacks here. The big problem, and you hear a lot about Ticketmaster and things like this, is we've gotten to a place as a society where you just want to go, what the fuck does it fucking cost? Okay, and I'll give you an exactly. example. I stayed in New York uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'd gotten a good rate. I, I had a, a friend who was a publicist, and they gave me a media rate at a hotel. And when I went to pay my bill, I was like, wow, this seems really high. So I, I called down to the desk and the guy said, I said, what's my rate per night? He said, 199. That's my rate. I said, well, it says here I paid 282. And he said, yeah, well, that's the taxes and fees. Mm -hmm. Taxes and fees are 50%. So my rate's really not 199. It's 282. He goes, no, 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 your rate's one. I go, Jesus Christ. So I think this is where people have the problem, like, whether you're going into a restaurant or whether you're ordering for a DoorDash or whatever, by the time, or Ticketmaster, by the time you get to the end, you're being told, no, no, the food, the ribs are $20. 
It's an, a plate of ribs is $20, but when you tack on the 40% or the 20%, it's really $24. Exactly. And let, let, let's break this down for a second because um, the hotel industry is doing the same thing with resort fees. Yes. And so what they're doing is they're covering other costs that they have with something called a resort fee. And why do they do that? Because they want their rack rate to be com- more competitive online, just like restaurants don't want to raise their prices so they can be more competitive online. Because we all know that the general public does not read between the lines. So if you just stated what the cost of the food was, which is what everyone's screaming about, that's exactly what you're saying. What the fuck? Why can't you just tell me what the price is, right? So our general public has gotten somewhat used to that the price of going out for dinner, if you buy a $30 steak, is essentially going to be a $36 steak after gratuity plus taxes because everybody assumes the taxes are going to be there regardless because there's a sales tax. So if we eliminate taxes and just get to what the actual cost of the food is, it's going to be the menu item, line item, plus whatever you leave in a tip or in this case with a service charge added on. And this is what's infuriating. And this is a battle that I faced about seven or eight years ago because I was seriously looking at eliminating the voluntary tipping idea. And the reason for that is, is how crazy is it that the hospitality industry is basically set up that the owner pays for their rent, their utilities, their insurance, their wages, you know, base wages, they pay their kitchen staff, they pay for their cost of food, they pay all of these things. And then they rely on the customer to pay the rest of it. Yeah. What, what, what kind of business model is that? And so uh, I like to use the shoe store analogy. If you go into a shoe store and there's a pair of shoes for $125, right? Can you imagine if that shoe store required you to pay 20% on top of that to the salesperson? No, they don't do business like that. They 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 take the, the $125 and they put the $25 on top of it. And now you have a $175 shoe. Or whatever the math is on that, I, I got that wrong. It's twenty five on top of one twelve, one thirty seven fifty, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's one price. So why is the restaurant business not like that, or why is the bar business not like? Well, and that? you you tried it, you said it, and you know, other people have tried. Most notably, Danny Meyer tried it in New York right. City and had to well, abandon. I, I, I never pulled the trigger. Okay, I I, I I I kept working on a formula that would make sense, and I came up with a formula that made sense. But the problem is, is that there's very little way to communicate that where the general public will take the time to digest it because all of, all of the marketing now to attract customers is done online. So people are price comparing just by the price next to the item and they're not reading the detail. Well, Jim, it's look at car leases. That's the one that gets me. Watch a commercial for a car lease. So say it's $1.99 a month and then you see across the bottom go... 10,000 do it signing. I'm like, it's not 199 yeah. a month. If you're giving them 10,000 up front, then e- extrapolate that over 36 months. That's what you're paying a month, you fucking same, idiots. Same with your hotel but yeah, okay. So, yeah, so all that. So I would say this. Uh, there's so many things. I'm getting very excited. I'm animated here, Jim. You got me animated. I think there's this uh, diffusion of responsibility and also where the buck stops. I think that people find frustrating. Well, let's keep it in the food realm. When you order from Uber Eats or DoorDash or something, something goes wrong. Try calling the restaurant to tell them the food's cold or they, oh, it's not our fault, the driver. And then you don't know who to blame. You call the drivers, they go, well, I don't know. And eventually maybe you get your money refunded. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to, I just want, I just want takeout. Remember when you could call the pizza place and the pizza place had a guy who worked for the pizza place who had a vested interest in getting your, and you paid him and everybody and it all worked. Okay. 
I'm venting. Let me say this. Let me throw a couple more ideas out at you here, Jim. Part of the problem as I see it is from those days that I'm talking about 30, 40 years ago where you'd call the pizza, is we have moved, the economy has shifted so much to a service industry economy. By that, I mean this. Back in the day, when you were a busboy or a dishwasher or whatever, these traditionally were jobs that were entry-level jobs that were a stepping stone to something else, right? Like a, you got a kid out, a kid in college was washing dishes or he was a busboy. I did it. You did it. We all did it. But the idea was eventually I'm going to get somewhere else, whether it's going to be I'm going to be a lawyer or I'm going to own my own restaurant or whatever it is you're going to do. Because we've become such a service industry economy now where you've got money up here at the top and then you've got a lot of people now serving – the guy that's bussing your tables or the guy that's washing the dishes, that's considered like they should be able to raise a family of four on these wages and what they're and I don't know that the system's set up to sustain that. Do you? Like do you do you see that issue where like California's a great example? The minimum wage here across the board, I think, is what, fifteen, sixteen dollars? Whether mm-hmm. you're you know, server or not. I just feel like the burden, the financial burden has been shifted in so many different directions that nobody knows their head from their ass now. And like, well, you know what? I, I, I really think this drills down to the, uh, the general consensus that the public are idiots. Yes. And, and the reason why I say that is because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to fool the general public all day long. At the end of the day, when it was all settled, when the dust is all settled, the customer pays for everything. There is a there is no other stream of revenue coming into a restaurant or a bar other than what's coming out of the wallet of the customer. So it, trying to break it up into all these different pieces and all these different charges so the owner can pay their bills. So let's let's just make a blanket assumption for a minute that all operators are ethical. They want to do the right thing by their employees, right? And they're not bad actors because we do have two separate groups of, of ownership out there. Yes. Let's just talk about the good guys for a second, right? And the, the good guys want to be able to run a solid business. They want to have a reasonable return on their gross revenue. You know, they want to be in, in, in the black. They want to make some money because they're taking the risk. And, and that's all that's all fair. And then they're looking at, okay, the restaurant business has always been historically a game of pennies. How many pennies from $1 of revenue do you bring to the bottom line? And you have to pay everything out of that. And so even if we were able to reverse this and get rid of tipping and create a model where the guest just paid one price plus tax, at the end of the day, is there enough money there, enough revenue there for a restaurant to stay in business? Well, good food is grossly underpriced in America. In other words, the consumer has, at some point, the consumer will wake up that if they want to eat well, they have to spend more money because it's not sustainable right now. Now, when they say in that article that it's been a long time that restaurants have been working on thin margins, that's really not true. That's really a eight to 15 year history. Prior to about 15 years ago, restaurants actually worked on very nice margins. And the tipping culture took care of the waitstaff, generally speaking, and everything was moving along relatively okay. Then what ended up happening is, is you start to get all of this inflationary pressure on, on, on costs. And especially the pandemic exacerbated it to the point of a, of a real critical point in time where it, it was so broken 
that there was nothing else to do. So during pandemic, when we were, especially when we were at limited capacities, one of the things that you saw, especially in New York, was you started to see like 3% line items for healthcare, right? And you started to see these other little mini line items creep in there because they don't think that the general public is smart enough to understand an increase, a substantial increase in pricing in order to pay for all these things. So the margins did get thinner. I mean, our at, at Jimmy's, uh, over the last five years, our payroll, our hardcore back of the house kitchen payroll went up by 50 to 60%. It's crazy. And, and and that's a lot of money. You have to produce a lot of revenue to pay for that. Maybe this idea that things that used to be considered special are now considered, of course, we're going to do that, whether it's flying, whether it's going out to dinner, whether, and maybe that has a lot to do with the internet and people have access to all these things. And like you said, they're getting bullshitted online about what things actually cost. But there is, yeah, there is this idea that maybe people need to scale back their expectations and go, maybe I can't go out to eat every other night. Maybe it's got to be a thing that I do. I don't I don't know if that's the solution. And that, that was kind of, I, I did want to ask before I do ask you what the, you think the solution is, is how far off are we before we start seeing this odious thing called dynamic pricing? Is that coming to the restaurant business soon? You know, it, 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 it probably is. And so everybody understands what dynamic pricing is, is basically when sellers, whether it's a restaurant or tickets or whatever it is, they hike the prices based on the demand. Let's use airline seats. You know, as, as airlines sell seats, the prices of the remaining seats go up. So at my restaurant, I would have loved to have been computerized to the level where if you wanted to eat between seven and nine, you're going to pay more for your food than someone that wants to eat between five and seven and nine and 11, right? Yeah. Because that's when the, that's where the demand is. So just like the airline seats, if the demand is up, the price goes up. So that's coming. You think that's coming? Well, I'm not sure technology has a way to produce it quite yet. Um, you know, it's certainly doable, but uh, it's it's. I, 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 I think you're going to start to see iterations of it start to pop up. Yes. So the answer is yes. I think it's coming. And I'm not sure exactly what form it's going to take. But you started to see it like when Resi came on board for an, for an online reservation system. They started saying, okay, if you want to go to the more popular restaurants that are hard to get seats, we'll talk to these restaurants about allocating a certain number of seats through our reservation platform, but you're going to pay us a fee for that reservation. So if you want to eat between seven, nine, and you're in New York City and it's a prime place, you're going to pay for that reservation. That was the first iteration of surge pricing that we saw in the industry. But we haven't quite seen it. We've, we've seen the reverse engineering of surge pricing through happy hours and reverse happy hours early and late, where people get a discount early and late if they choose to eat during non-busy times. But as far as a positive uh, or, pro, or pro-surging um, you know, versus the discounting, uh, I, I I do agree with you. I, I I do think that we will see that. Okay. Certainly in the larger metropolitan areas. Let me get this from you. We'll finish with this, Jim. So as someone who's been in the restaurant business and has had great success, in, if you were the all-being master of time, space, and dimension, and somebody brought you in and said, solve this problem, let's eliminate the uncertainty for the consumers, let's eliminate the uncertainty for the staff, the consumer feels like they're being taken advantage of, the servers feel like they're being taken advantage of, the back of the house, how do you fix the problem? Well, you know, I was really hoping that one of the um, outcomes of the pandemic was going to do just this, because we had a golden opportunity coming out of the pandemic to fix this. And we did not. We just wanted to run back to the old way as fast as we could as a general population. 
which was really, unfortunately, very disconcerting. The way to fix this thing is to understand that right now, the one thing you're not going to fix is that the uh, the waiter and the bartender consider themselves salespeople, and they should be rewarded on the strength of their ability to sell. That's a very, very, very hard thing in one generation to fix. That's going to be multi-generational to fix. So the way to fix it is to create a no-tipping world where you eliminate the idea of, of tipping, right? So it's not even available on your credit card charge. You can't do it. The credit card companies won't take it. It's not a viable way. If somebody wants to slip someone cash, that you're never going to lose that, but we're quickly moving away from a cash society anyway. So you create a revenue sharing model. And this is where Danny was heading, and I thought it was very brilliant. But unfortunately, in order for your waiters stay, to still maintain a 20% uh, uh, sales commission, so to speak, you have to raise the prices even further. So the absolute cost before tax of your menu items is probably going to see an increase of 25 to 30% to fix the problem. Then the operator takes full control over that money. It becomes taxable revenue, which is the government is definitely moving towards creating because they want more taxes. They, they want a bigger uh, a pound of flesh. And then the owner now has the ability to reward their sales staff based on a percentage of sales still and increase the wages of the back of the house, non-tipped traditionally non-tipped employees to a livable wage. And there's ways to slice up that pie that would still be satisfactory to the salesman mentality. And yet, though, would fix the healthcare issues, um, you know, that the owners would need to pay, as well as other benefits, 401k matching, and create an actual mature style business model. And so, but the consumer has to be willing to accept probably a 25 to 30 percent increase in current prices. You mentioned the fact that we've moved away from a cash society. It's a huge part of it now, because if I understand it correctly, when their tips are going on the credit card. There's no like, hey, what you make tonight? I made 50 bucks, even though you got $300 cash in your pocket, right? Does that make, does that made a difference in the profession? Because when it was cash, let's face it, we were all waiters. No, no waiter ever declared what they were actually making in cash. But well, you- we, we, we certainly saw the slide of that, you know, as cash started to disappear, it certainly started to change in the beginning. Uh, the government never looked. You just declared whatever you declared, and that was that. And then about 25 years ago, the government came out, or 20, uh, roughly 20, I'm so old, I don't even know what how long ago it was, that uh, the government came out and said, we make the assumption that you're going to bring in 12% of your sales. And however that's divvied up, it has to be accounted for. And now now it's all credit card charges have to be accounted for. And And if that number falls below a threshold of total sales based on a generalized assumption of, of what the overall percentage of gratuities would be, then the government has an option to audit the restaurant and then audit the employees. So yes, um, okay. cash is no longer king, uh, but it, it, well, it's actually emperor now if you ever see it. Well, I don't know how I feel. I don't know if I feel better. I feel better because just talking to you, Jim, always makes me feel better. I don't know if this the problem's been solved, but you've certainly illuminated a lot of things here about this. And, and I want to keep coming back to this with you as we, as these sort of situations arrive, I appreciate your, your expertise on this. So Jimmy's closed. You, 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 you got out of that. You're doing Woody Creek real quick before you go. What we're going to see something else from you in the, uh, in breaking news here, any restaurant space stuff coming? Are you just enjoying your you globe, know, I, globe trotting? Uh, I, I had the dream exit, Dan. Yeah. And, uh, I got paid, which was lovely. We sold the restaurant and bar. 
and I got the uh, Netflix episodic farewell season because I got three months to announce it and before we had to actually vacate. And so everything about the exit was perfect. It was, um, I was entering, I think it was my 42nd year in the business, 25 years at Jimmy's. And uh, no, you will not see me. But you are involved with Woody Creek Distillers. Yes. Are you also, yes. are you also still involved with the Del McGay? No, um, uh, I exited Del, well, I was never really a formal employee in any way, shape or form at Del McGay. I just supported Ron and his efforts in that. Um, so technically I'm no longer involved, uh, now it. that Pernod Ricard has bought them, but Woody Creek Distillers, it's a local distillery. I love everything that they do. They do it right. They don't cut any corners. Uh, they have the resources to wait on the whiskey program. So we don't source anything. Everything's Colorado grown. The story is just so great. And I've been supporting them since 2012 through the restaurant and bar when they, when, when they launched. And now I get to go around and, and, and hang out with my friends in the industry and talk spirits and. Uh, if we fit into their programs, they're the ones that bring it up. I don't need to be a salesman. There you go. The great Jimmy Yeager, your wisdom is matched only by your handsomeness. Look at you, man. You, you mentioned you're getting older, but I don't see it. You know, you look the same as when I met you 25 years ago or it was actually longer than that. (laughs) Those are some pretty special days back to the Howling Wolf. It was actually long. It was like 30 years ago. Oh, whoa, we're so old. Anyway, Jim. 32 years ago. (laughs) Appreciate you coming on, man. You got it, my friend. Anytime. Just let me know. Some of my favorite summertime cocktails are whiskey-based. The mint julep, a gold rush, a paper plane. And the whiskey I turn to as the base in those cocktails is Rabbit Hole. They make bourbon and rye in extremely small batches at their wonderful distillery in Louisville, Kentucky. Rabbit Hole's recipes are totally unique and were created by their founder, Bourbon Hall of Famer Cave Zamanian, who spares no expense in making great whiskey. Cave and his team have their own cooking methods and use top-of-the-line grains. They never chill filter, and they use barrels that are toasted, charred, and wood-fired, which almost nobody else in the business does. Trust me on this. What you end up with is a line of bourbon and rye with these really rich, deep flavors that are unlike anything you've ever tasted. The forecast for this summer is hot, 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 and I, for one, plan to cool down with some refreshing cocktails made with rabbit hole. Please, my friends, come join me. Summer is upon us, friends, and summer is the time for sipping on cold, refreshing cocktails made with the best ingredients. If I've said it once, I've said it a gajillion times. You can buy the best spirits in the world to make craft cocktails at home, but if you use crap mixers, you're going to get crap drinks. That's why I am all about fresh Victor. Fresh Victor is a line of all-natural, clean-label cocktail mixers that brings the magic of master mixologists into your home. They feature a bunch of unique blends with contemporary flavors designed to suit any palate. All of the ingredients are fair trade sourced. There's no artificial anything. The mixers are produced at a 100% solar-powered juicing plant with absolutely no waste. None! And right now, Fresh Victor is offering a summertime special exclusively for you, dear listener. Simply go to freshvictor.com, fill up your shopping cart, and at checkout, enter promo code FVDAN20. That's Fresh Victor, FVDAN20, to get 20% off your order. Now's the time to bust out the bikinis and bathing suits and to treat yourself to the very best mixers on the market. And that's Fresh Victor. Joining me now, one of the greatest golfers in history, a Hall of Famer who's won 90 international tournaments as a pro, making her the winningest 
female golfer of all time. Among those wins, 10 majors. All that winning yielded a record eight Player of the Year awards. She's also created and owns a honey-sweetened, ready-to-drink vodka cocktail brand called Fizzy Bees. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome to the show Annika Sorenstam. How are you? Hello. Thank you very much for having me, Dan. Great to be here. It's great to have you. I, I mean, this is I'm a I'm a golfer. I have uh, been duffing it for way too long, and so there's a big <laughs> thrill to have you here. And we're going to get to golf, but I want to I want to jump in real quick about uh, about Fizzy Bees. So, uh, as I understand it, during COVID, your husband Mike McGee and, and you and you got thinking, hey, we want to create something. You were kind of tight. You were drinking ready to drink stuff, but you didn't like what you were tasting and decided to do it. And you brought in a friend named Kathy Johansson, who's a, you play pickleball with, and she's a wine consultant. Do I have that right? Is that how the brand started? You're spot on so far. Okay. So what went into that decision? Walk me back to the, the night you went or the day you went, hey, let's do this. Yeah, well, you mentioned COVID. I think a lot of us were bored during COVID. So um, my husband, his best friend, owns a big distributor in Ohio, and they would bring all, bring all these RTD drinks over, and I just didn't like any of them. And uh, I, I told my husband, why don't we make our own? Something that has flavor, something with, you know, that doesn't have too much calories, like something in the middle. And he looked at me, he's like, sweetie, you are such a busy bee. We don't need any more projects. And that's when I started to make these RTD drinks, which happen in the kitchen and vodka based. We have a lot of honey at the house. I use that instead of, you know, cane sugar or syrups and all kind of funky stuff. And then we use real fruit juice and I started to make classic cocktails. So he was my taster. So he, I don't know, I think he had the better part of the role, I think. And you've, you mentioned you started to mix them up. You got four flavors, uh, Cosmopolitan, Margarita, Mojito, and a Moscow Mule, correct? Yep, that is correct. What's your go-to of the four? Yeah, it's one of those things when, you know, who? what's your favorite child, right? It's a yeah. tough question. But, uh, you know, Cosmo is my favorite. I'm a big, uh, I mean, I like vodka crayons. So this is, you will find, you know, 5% vodka here. You will find 5%, you know, the the vodka in there and then the cranberry and then the organic honey. So it's very, very few ingredients, nothing artificial. Uh, number two will be Moscow Mule. But those are my two favorite choices. And you're you're working with a place called Artie's Harvest. They they they're yep. an ethical honey farmer. Exactly right. Yep. They're in Washington State. So we really, you know, we really believe in the bees, as you know, no bees, no food, right? Um, and uh, we give back to the bees through our merchandise on our website. All the net proceeds go back to honey farmers and beekeepers. We're giving away money to different nonprofit organizations to help them. Most of it is actually to educate people the importance of bees. You know, they educate especially kids. They move the queen to safer places. It's been really an interesting process. And, I, you know, we're very thankful. For it, but we think it's a good tie because we use organic honey. And artists have the best honey that we've ever found. Well. As it turns out, Annika, I done a little preparation today. I've I've created a bee quiz. I'm gonna do a little <laughs> a little bees quiz here. I hope you're ready. You didn't know you're gonna yeah, be, you didn't know you're gonna be getting in. You didn't know you're gonna be on Jeopardy today, did you? All right, I got I got a couple of questions about bees, and I want to ask you, and we'll see how we do here. And I and I preface this by saying I didn't know any of this beforehand. I just okay. looked it up, so you don't have the benefit. We did not rehearse this, so here we go. Some bees questions. First one. How many mouthfuls of our food depend on pollinators such as bees? Is it one out of three 
one out of four, or one out of five mouthfuls of food? One out of three. That is correct. All right. Whoa. You, you know your bees. All right. Okay. Here's one. We've okay. all seen this. You see a little bumblebee struggling. It's good. If you find a bumblebee which appears to be struggling, the best thing to do is A, gently put the bee onto a bee-friendly flower. B, mix 50-50 white sugar and water. Give the bumblebee a little energy boost. C, put the bee in a sheltered place, gently move it, and allow it time to recuperate, or D, all of the above. I would say D, all of the above. And that is also correct. By the way, my 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 off humor me was going to go or or E, step on it. Like, but you would never do that. <laughs> Put it out of its misery. Uh, don't, that wasn't an option. don't do that. Whatever you do. All right, here we go. You're killing it so far. You know your bees. How many, how many wings do bees have? Two, four, or six? Well, there are, well, insects. I know how many legs an insect has. Um, I would, what's four or six? Got to pick Is one. Is it like a, I know. I know they don't have five because that would be the middle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, six. The answer is four. Uh, four. Oh, it says okay. that the two wings each side hook together to form one larger pair when they're flying, and then they unhook when they're not oh, flying. Okay. All right, our final question in our bees. Yeah. You're, you're, you got two for two out of three. This is for the win. Three out of four would be the win. I don't. We're not playing for anything, but you'd still win. All right, here we go. Which of the following issues do bees have? Bad breath. Smelly feet or cross eyes? <laughs> what was the first one? Bad breath, smelly feet, <laughs> or cross eyes? I think cross eyes. Are you sure? Is that your final answer? I, well, when you ask it like that, I'm trying to think. Uh, I really haven't smelled a bee, either their breath or their feet. It's dangerous. It's not something I'd recommend going yeah. up and sticking your nose next to a bee. Cross eyes. You know, the way that the eyes sit on the side, it just. I will go with that. All right, yeah. cross side. The answer is, drum roll, please. <laughs> Smelly feet. All right, here, let me explain. The scientists from the University of Bristol have discovered that bumblebees have the ability to use their smelly footprints, and that's their words, to distinguish between their own scent, the scent of a relative, and the scent of a stranger. Oh, wow. There you go. Good facts. All right. Good facts. Look at that. Look at that. Now, we, we, I'm looking at some of the facts on your, your website here. Uh, all, all the materials are recyclable that you're using. Uh, it's a female-owned and operated business. I love yes. this question. It says, is Annika the famous golfer really one of the owners? <laughs> yes, she is. And she's here. Now, is there a charitable component to your business? Let's hear about that. Yeah. So we give back to nonprofits, to beekeepers and honey farmers in different cities that we sell our products. So, for example, last summer we gave away a check to uh, in Cincinnati called the Queen City Pollinating Projects. Uh, they educate people about the bees. They move the queens. Obviously, they have uh, a big area with, you know, where they harvest honey. We don't use that that honey because we use artists. But you know, just to, you know, these are nonprofits. These are people's passions, and you. It's so interesting to hear since we started doing this, so many people are interested in bees and they actually have one or two hives in their yards, which I never, you know, conversations that really don't come up. And then just recently on Earth Day here, April 22nd, we gave it to uh, the Nashville 
um, bee, bee farms, it was called, and they were just fantastic too, just helping smaller organizations to help educate people about the importance of bees. So that's really what we do in every city we're in. The goal is to give a little bit to nonprofit to support them, but also obviously what we call pollinate fizzy bees around the country. It's crazy. I watched a news report. It was an extended news report. This is a while back about mm-hmm. bees in California. And and I and the reason I brought this up was it says you use a, a honey farmer that's ethically raised, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how much intrigue and backstabbing. So have you ever heard of this? Like they were stealing bee, like bees, beekeeper, bee people out here would go and steal the bees. Have you heard of this? I like, no, I didn't tell me. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. They go and they'd steal the hunt, the queen, the nest, because yeah. I guess it's valuable to have the, you know, these bees. And this was happening out here in California and somebody got shot. This is in the central coast. Like a, a, a guy shot somebody who was going on to try to, and there's ways they can lure the bees too. Like there's yeah, that, I can, that I can see. Yeah. A little yeah. sneaky. Not wow. That's interesting. Who knew, and, and look, you, you've said it. I mean, there is no, uh, there's no us without bees. When the bees go away, not when, if they ever did. And hopefully then so do we, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think people really realize. I mean, as you know, we take a lot of things for granted. But if you really look into it, I mean, there there bees. You know, I thought you were going to ask questions about pollinating, but these. I mean, there's so many bees need to just give a little teaspoon. Like in there, I think the the statistics is a twelfth of a teaspoon is what a bee in their lifetime can provide. So we're talking a lot of bees that's needed. And uh, as you know, also honey has a lot of health benefits. You know, whether we talked about, obviously, honey and our fizzy bees, but, you know, my husband takes it in tea and coffee. It helps him from allergies. I don't know if you have allergies, but try local local honey. You know, it just creates this immune system. You know, so it's what, just, why, it, why is that? You know, is that just because it's the, the honey itself is being impacted by the local allergens and it helps? Is that how does well, that work? Well, think of it, yeah. So think of every bee. I mean, they jump from flower to flower. So they carry, you know, the flowers and my husband had allergies from flowers. So when you take the local, you're literally putting in just like you do an allergy shot. They actually put in the things that you're allergic to, to so that the body creates the antibodies. So when you put in a spoon of local honey, you're actually getting those pollinators. I mean, the, you know, part of the flowers that you're allergic to. So then you build the immune system. So it's it's pretty neat how it, how it all works, um, but you know for cooking, I mean people take for burns, they take it. I mean it's metabolism. If you want to want your metabolism to increase, take a little honey. It has a lot of benefits, so it's pretty cool to learn. So Winnie Winnie the Pooh had the right idea all along, <laughs> didn't he? Yes, all along. <laughs> he wasn't a silly old bear after all, was he? No, he knew. Um, all right. Well, I got. I can't let. First of all, I just want to tell everybody out there: if you want to, if you want to get uh, fizzy bees, it's f i z z y b e b e e z dot com. Fizzybees dot com. It'll answer all your uh, questions. And most importantly, where you can get it, where you can find it. Where? How's your distribution now? Where are you in terms of America? Are you all? So we are in. You can find us in Ohio. You can find us in Tennessee, and you can find us in Nevada. You know, we've only been on the market for. Uh, 14 months. And uh, that's kind of where we are. But we are, we're expanding our distribution and uh, we're super excited about it. So this is the beginning of the journey, right? So we appreciate you having us on here talking about it. But yeah, we're, uh, we're very um, psyched about it. So now I got to I got to see it. You see the hat I'm wearing here. Anika. I see that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I live in Venice, California, and this hat says Penmar. 
which is a local nine-hole muni course here in Venice, California. It's uh, my understanding is it's the busiest nine-hole course in America, right? They put five sums wow. out, they go out. But what it's most famous for, and you can see on this hat right here, do you see the plane? Looks yeah, like a plane. Yeah, it looks like it's going down. Do you remember when Harrison Ford took off and crashed his yeah. plane? That's here. That's Penmar. That's why That's they have it. it. Oh, wow. So it oh, leads wow. me to ask you, in your long career, just your long time playing, What's the craziest thing that's ever happened on a golf course? Yeah, well, you can imagine. I mean, it's not just about the shots and the score, but a lot about the people that you met. But, um, you know, was it, we played in a tournament. There was a U.S. Open, I mean, many, many years ago, and they had to uh, delay start because they found a dead body on the course. I didn't see it. I wasn't there. But that was a legit reason to delay play for sure. So um, <laughs> I don't know if somebody, not to make of it but i don't know what the reason was maybe it was a bad score or anything but it was terrible so if your uh, yeah. ball got lodged under the dead body <laughs> pga <laughs> rules uh, under uh, usga rules can you lift the body up uh if it moves the ball is that a stroke i think you should have a free drop within <laughs> two or three club lengths maybe in this case it would be a few more than two <laughs> <laughs> ah, that would be funny. Um, but no, I mean, it is, it, it is spectacular, the career you have. And, and one of the things you did, I, I, I was looking, it was uh, back in two, you retired in 2008. In 2007, you created the Annika Foundation, uh, providing golf opportunities all over, junior, collegiate, pro levels, and obviously living the healthy, active lifestyle that you do. Um, how important, how much is golf a part of your life now? Well, uh, you certainly done your homework. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would say it's, you know, pretty much all day because I'm starting to play again. I, you know, I picked up the club two and a half years ago. I turned 50 after COVID, after mixing fizzy bees, I started to play a little bit and uh, our son is really into golf. So I would say golf is, I mean, every day we still work golf, whether it's a foundation, as you mentioned, we have now seven global tournaments, over 600 girls playing our events. And many of them have gone on to you know, to the LPGA or the Epson tour, which is kind of the development tour. And uh, we have created a development program. Yeah. So I'm super involved in the game of golf. I still do charity events and I have uh, corporate partners and I caddy for our son. And well, you came yes. back too, but you're being modest here because when you say, but you actually <laughs> retired in 2008 and then didn't you come back in 21 and, and won a huge tournament? I did. Yeah. It was the U S women's senior open. That's correct. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I guess it was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, I did. It was great. And I'm going to play in the U S open, uh, in your home state, uh, in a few That's months right at here Pebble. at the LA country club. Right. Yeah. Pebble beach. Oh, at Pebble, Pebble beach. beach. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I've played Pebble a ton of times actually, believe it or not. Oh, I, it's beautiful, I, right? I love it. Although I, I still miss the ghost tree, the tree up there at the top at, at six. It fell down. Remember a few years ago, the one, uh, right? oh yeah. I mean, at the par top. five up the hill, you mean? Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. the par three, the, the iconic, yeah. that tree right. was forever the symbol of Pebble Beach. And I guess probably six years ago or something, the wind blew it over. But, uh, but yeah, one of my, I mean, one of the greatest courses. I mean, you've played them all. You, you shot. I mean, this is the part that I think you're, you actually broke 60. You shot a 59 in an event. You're, are you the only woman that's ever done that, right? In a tournament? Yes. Yeah. Uh, March 16, 2001. Yeah. Are you aware, like, do you know going up 18, like I, if I just shoot this, I will, or do you, is it, you blocking that out? Well, no, I mean, there's a fun, you know, you're going to go back and forth. There's a part of your brain that's super excited. And then you have the other part that's trying to more be more logical, like, okay, don't think about it. Just kind of hit one shot at a time. 
but I was 13 under going into the last round and actually had a putt for 58 that kind of, you know, just kind of slithered uh, by the left side. But yeah, no, I mean, but I would say that the last putt, the three footer that I had is more when I was really, really shaking because I knew that, you know, if you miss it, it's, it's, you know, great round, my lowest ever, but if you make it, it's, you know, history. So I would think I, that at that point I was, you know, a lot more nervous uh, than during the round, but yeah, I mean, it was just one of those rounds hit 18 greens, had 18 birdie pass, and it just kind of went my way. You you say it sort of matter-of-factly, but I'm curious. Are there psych, psychologists, professionals, people that – how – or do you do this on your own to be able to train your brain? And I'm talking about somebody who's an amateur golfer that has nothing at stake except I play in a lot of tournaments and things. I'm in a golf club out here. How do you – because it's such an – it's – total isolation it's a singular sport you have no teammates to rely on you when it comes down to those moments is there a team that helps you prepare mentally or is this all just your own fortitude well I mean of course I've got some help with coaching and stuff I do a little bit of mental coaching in my in my early amateur days but I think a lot of it is you know learn from experience I mean I quickly I realized that the longest distance in golf is between your ears and it's all about you know, when you stand over the ball, you know, have a positive view, you know, visualize good shots. I always tell people, you know, throw out bad shots, you know, dissociate like they don't exist and just associate good shots. If you grab a seven, just see a good seven. If you're standing over a putt, just visualize a good putt. And because the more you can have that routine and the more you focus on the shot that you're hitting, I think what makes golf so difficult is we have time between our shots to think about what can go wrong, right? Oh, you have yeah. time to think about, I don't want to be left. I don't want to be right. It's like all the things you don't want to. In a lot of other sports, it's more reactive, right? You play basketball, you get it here. You know, if you stood there and have to think about everything, it's probably not going to be. I'm not saying basketball is easy, but you know what I mean? You're just more reactive. You kind of go with the flow and, you know, tennis, the ball is coming and so But in golf, you stand there and the thing is not moving. I think that's what makes it more frustrating is why is it so difficult? Because you start visualizing, seeing negative things. What are the consequences rather than what we call about focus on the positive? That's exactly right. Like I, it's, it's such a great way to put it because when you're in a basketball game, these guys, these pros have taken these shots a gajillion times, just like you have in golf. But the difference is you get the ball, the, the clock's ticking down to zero. You're not thinking, you don't get a chance to go, what if I go too long? What if I, it's just shoot, boom, get it, do the thing you've been doing exactly. since you were five years old. And if it goes in it go, and it doesn't. That's my biggest issue is, and I'm sure it's most amateur golfers, is I go, I don't know how, I, like I do this all the time, Monica, I'll go, whatever you do, don't leave this putt short. And then invariably. <laughs> <laughs> I so know, get, we always say, like, we're not to do. How many people stand on the tee and say, okay, down the middle, and let, you know, they start like, like this, and they look and go, oh, out of bounds, and then they start moving left. Oh, there's a water hazard. All of a sudden you know, the fairway became this small and then you, you have tension, you know, your shoulders are up to the ears and then you try to guide it. And when you guide something, then it ha doesn't have that flow. You know what I mean? That's how you create. And that's what I think makes it so difficult. But I mean, like you said, this is part of golf. I think what you learn is just, you know, focus on, on shots. Do you hit well and not, I mean, have I hit bad shots in my life? Of course I have. But when I stand over a shot, I'm not going to think about that terrible five iron, you know, that hit that, tree at Pebble Beach on number six. <laughs> I'm going to think about, you know, the good fire runs I've hit. I think there, you know, it's sort of apl applicable to life, really, if you think about golf in that way, is if you can get into that flow and not allow these things, 
what be it a bad shot on a golf course or something that bad that happened like i think that's such a big part of the game you know and, and i'm i'm working on it all the time because i i get out and i go all right try to my big thing is when i start screwing up i do invariably i do this especially on the greens once i lose confidence in my putter which is usually by hole three or four I do the I do the D cell. Is that common? Like I just do the D yeah. cell where I go uh, and then I. I know you're like, please, right? Please go in. It's not this, you know. Boom! I'm in charge. I can do it, right? And you know, it's very common. And where like, does know, that you, come from? Then why do we D cell? What's what's happening? Yeah, it's, the, it's the hesitation. But you know, when it comes to putting, and I, we all have done this, so I know exactly how you feel. It's more like short putts. Is like, well, they have to go in, right? You know, hit a big drive and it's like, well, it's okay. You know, you can recover from the right side of the fairway or you can, if you miss the green, you can still, you know, make up and down. But if you have that three-footer, you got to make it, right? I mean, that's just yeah. a must. I think that must is what we get stuck on. You that's know what it. I mean? Final golf question. Fizzy bees. when you're out playing a fun round with the friends, not obviously on the uh, in a professional event or anything like that, how many fizzy bees wait, every third hole? We knock back a fizzy bee because you got four of them. I'm thinking if you do, or maybe every fourth hole, one for every four holes, right? Yeah. I mean, we say they're equally, you know, good for birdies and for the bees. Keep that in mind. A little. <laughs> yeah. Well, it does. So. Honestly, when I'm playing out with the friends, we're not playing in a tournament or something. You have a couple of drinks when you're out there. It does relax you a little bit. Yeah. It loses yeah, you up. Like, liquid. Who yeah, cares if I make this three footer? I've got a I've got a Cosmo waiting back in the cart. <laughs> yeah, and that's what we say. You don't need a bartender. It's literally right there for you. How much is uh what's a four pack? They come in a four pack? Or is it yeah, a four single flavored? You know, we're at eleven ninety nine in most places. Okay. So. and alcohol a A B V in those? Five. So Five. it's like a light beer. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, you know, it's it's refreshing. I mean, this is the time of year is upon us. For fizzy bees, oh, yeah. right? This is the yeah, yeah. the summer thing. And if you're playing golf, I'm going to be taking my fizzy bees out with me. Next time I'm on the golf course, I'll be channeling my inner Annika. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, let me know how it goes. I'll, I'll email you and say I still shot. I still shot 16 over. But uh, you know what are you going to do? It's a uh, it's a great game, and nobody played it better than you. And uh, and I'm excited for this next thing you've got going. I, I I'm confident. Uh, based on your history, that Fizzy Bees is also going to become a real winner. Well, you're super sweet. Thank you very much for having me and look forward to um, seeing you in person. Maybe I'll see you on the links. <laughs> I drive you crazy. Be every hole, every <laughs> shot. Every, all right, now what do I do? Now what do I do? Now what do I do? Uh, no, Annika Sorenstam, Sorenstam, let's say that. Yeah, I should be. I used to, I dated a Swedish woman for many, many years. All right, so you know any Swedish? Uh I blocked it all out after that relationship. Okay, okay. It wasn't a good ending. <laughs> I used to, how do you say I love you? If you say it, I'll know it. Jag älskar dig. See, I baited you. I just wanted you to say you love me. <laughs> you there we go. That. Annika Sorensen loves me. You never said it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, say it one more time. Because No, no, seriously. Uh, jag. Jag. Uh-huh. Älskar. Älskar. Dig. Dig. See, I knew that. Yeah. I used to say that all the time. And then it was so traumatic that I blocked it all out. No, I'm kidding. It was fine. She's wonderful. All the Swedes are wonderful, uh, especially this one here. Thank you so much for, for spending time with me here today, Annika, and, and best of luck with Fizzy Bees. Everybody go check it out on the website. Coming soon. If it's not in Ohio or wherever you're at, you'll be getting it soon enough. And uh, thanks. Cool. Thank you. That was fun.
Hey, you can forget about the therapy and the practice screen. I've got a more important job for you. I want you to kill every golfer on the course. Check me if I'm wrong, Sandy, but if I kill all the golfers, they're going to lock me up and throw away the key. Golfers! You're great kid, not golfers. The little brown furry rodents. We can do that. Hey. We don't even have to have a reason. Do it, man. All right, let's do the same thing, but with gophers. Hush! Oh, I love me some Caddyshack. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I want to thank Annika Sorenstam for being on the show. My old pal Jimmy Yeager for joining us as well. And of course, you, dear listener, you make the world go round here. There's no this without you. And I appreciate that. Coming up, uh, next one, we've got the next two episodes. We're going to do our summer wine extravaganza. That ought to be a lot of fun. Also, a little uh, teaser here. i got some merch coming. That's right. We're doing merch for the podcast. And once I have all those details, I'll give them to you. So you can buy a hat and a shirt and be part of the WWD. I don't know. What are we, an army? WWE army? WWD pub crawlers? I don't know. Something. Uh, that information will probably be on my social media at some point. I invite you to follow me at the imbiber on Instagram, WWD underscore podcast, also on Instagram. And I, that's all I got. Miss you already. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.